The priority is to select the best players, you know, really. And I know that sounds silly, but, you know, last, last year, again, we couldn't pass up on Saquon. He was the best player in the draft. You can't do that. You, you listen, you know, we've, ha- we've had this conversation before. You know, Eli's closer to 40 than he is to 25. I think we can all do the math, you know, 40 take away 38. We can do that. Um, but at the end of the day, we're going to take the best players. It is entirely possible that by the end of the week, we will all owe Dave Gettleman an apology. The embattled New York Giants general manager has been the laughingstock of the league for the last couple of months. But does he have a plan all along that's going to reveal itself on draft day? I'm starting to think he does. I'll explain more coming up throughout the show. This is the Sports Panel on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad that you're with me on your Tuesday afternoon. Throughout the day, we're going to break down the NBA playoffs because we have two teams that have officially clinched a spot in the second round. They just so happen to be playing each other. The Celtics will take on the Bucks. We look ahead to that series. Plus, I believe there's one Western Conference team that is uniquely built to take down Golden State, and it's not Houston. All of that, plus the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs tonight. I know what I'll be doing this evening. Plus, the Triple Crown, horse racing. That's just on the horizon. I've got an expert joining me on the subject in about 15 minutes. All of that is going to come up over the next hour you can hear it right here in the Sports Pen on ESPN UP. And again, if you miss any part of the show, you can get it in the on demand section of our free mobile app, which you can get from the Apple iStore Store or Google Play. Just search ESPN UP. All right, the New York Giants, they have been a laughing stock well before Dave Gittleman was the general manager there. Ever since their playoff loss to the Packers a couple of years ago, the Giants are 8 24. That offseason, a few things changed in the Giants' locker room. One, sympathy and support for Eli dwindled, not just in the locker room, but among the fan base. Think back to that playoff game against the Packers a couple of years ago in the wild card round. That loss wasn't on Eli. He was on point in that game. He looked really good slinging the ball. That was on the receivers, and you remember that was the game after Odell and the wideouts went down to Miami for a weekend. They were celebrating, partying instead of practicing. After that, support for Eli Manning dwindled. He hasn't been the same since that game. The other thing that happened that offseason, they got Brandon Marshall. They added him to a really good receiving core they had at the time. People were saying, this is a team that could go to the Super Bowl. Give Eli another weapon. We'll see if he's still got some in the tank in his mid-30s. And they come out and lay an egg. They go 3-13 and and brew by two wins this year under a new head coach and go 5-11. and So where does that blame fall? Because New Yorkers need to blame somebody. There's not a lot to be happy about if you're a New York sports fan right now. The Knicks were at the bottom of the league. The Yankees, man, everybody's hurt. You know, they're hanging around, but they've got 13 players on the injured list. The Mets, you know, they'll probably hang around for a little bit. The Rangers missed the playoffs again. The Islanders, I mean, they made it, but they're not exactly the Bronx hockey team. They're out there in Long Island. New Yorkers expect a lot out of their sports franchises, so they got to blame somebody. And where does that blame fall? It falls on the quarterback. Unjustly or not, that's usually where it goes if your team's not winning. So Eli Manning, at 37 years old, has been taking the brunt of criticism from Giants fans. Does he deserve it? He deserves some of it. Has Eli been great? No, he certainly hasn't been great the last couple of years. But he's not the problem as much as the media wants you to believe he is. 37 years old this past season, his numbers were actually up. 
This season, Eli completed 380 passes. He's only completed more in one season during his career, and that was back in 2015 when he was a pro bowler. Completed 66% of his passes. That's up. 4,299 yards. That's up. 21 touchdowns. That's up. And 11 interceptions. That's down. Eli has not been great. There's no doubt. But is he as bad as everyone wants you to believe? He's not. The numbers would back that up. But the New York media, when you're in a New York market and you're not delivering, then they got to find somebody to blame. And if you're a quarterback, then you're taking the brunt of it. You're in the front lines because quarterback is not just another position. And New York fans understand that. But they're a proud city, proud sports city, and they want winning teams. They want teams they can be proud of. So they're looking for somebody to blame. And does some of it fall on Eli Manning? Absolutely it does. But is bringing a new quarterback in going to solve all the Giants' problems? No, they're just going to be looking for somebody else to blame after that. Then it's not a 37-year-old veteran with two Super Bowl rings who's taking the criticism. Then it's some 22, 23-year-old kid who is just out of college. He's never experienced anything like the New York media. There are certain cities where the media makes it clear they are not out to be your friend. Sports media in places like New York, Los Angeles, cities like that, they're not there to be your friend. So here's the situation. You've got an aging quarterback on his last legs. You've got a general manager trying to restructure the team, restructure the offense. And you've got the draft coming up. You've got two first-round picks, number six and number 17 overall. Everyone's clamoring, take a quarterback. They say they should have done it last year. And they didn't, which means Dave Gettleman is coming under fire as general manager for passing on a quarterback. Here's the deal. It blows my mind how people can criticize a general manager who drafted the rookie of the year, the reigning rookie of the year, and everyone acts like this GM has no clue what he's doing. Yeah, quarterback is a position unlike any other. But the Giants also had a need at running back. Would they have been any better this year? Would they have improved on their 5-11 record with Sam Darnold and Wayne Gallman as the quarterback-running back combination? I'd rather have Eli and Saquon. Okay, I've never seen a general manager get criticized more roundly for taking the offensive rookie of the year at number two overall. I've never seen a GM get more roundly criticized for hitting a home run with a draft pick. And do I agree with everything Gettleman's doing? No. I wasn't so sure about the Odell Beckham trade. Maybe there was some stuff going on behind the scenes from what it sounds like it was a culture issue and that is what led to the trade. But even still, I see why he does it. Sending Olivier Vernon to the Browns, that was the other trade with Cleveland that people don't talk about nearly as much. Vernon's a difference maker. He's one of the best at his position when he's on the field, but the key words are when he's on the field, which was very little during his Giants tenure. Could not stay healthy. Instead, they fill a need in the offensive line. They get Zeitler in return for him. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where the Giants' biggest need is. Not the quarterback position, not the wide receiver core, it's the offensive line. Can we all agree that the Giants' offensive line has been garbage for the last two years? It has been. And is that an excuse for Eli? No. He's got to be better. He's got to make some throws that he was making early on in his career. He's got to. But he still needs a little time to throw the ball, does he not? I mean, can we not agree that the Giants' offensive line has been straight-up garbage over the last couple of years? And that is what makes me think that I wouldn't be at all surprised if the Giants take an offensive lineman with the sixth overall pick in the draft Thursday night. 
Jonah Williams would be the popular choice. I'm not sure how much I trust the Giants to do that, to take an offensive lineman at number six overall. Of course, you're going to hear all the boo birds come out. You remember, this is the same team that thought it was a good idea to draft Eric Flowers at number nine overall in 2015. But I wouldn't be shocked to see it happen. I would not be at all surprised if the Giants pass on Dwayne Haskins in this year's draft. The reason being, they want a mobile quarterback. Eli's been a stationary pocket passer. Dwayne Haskins is a stationary pocket passer quarterback. So yeah, the kid can pass, the kid can throw the football, but when his line doesn't hold up, what's he going to do? I'm not saying the Giants shouldn't draft Dwayne Haskins. I think Dwayne Haskins would be an upgrade for a lot of teams in the NFL. I think he'd be a great NFL quarterback. But if I'm Dwayne Haskins, I don't want the Giants to take me. I want to go somewhere where I know I'm protected. I don't want to be a 23-year-old kid and get crushed because Big Blue's offensive line can't protect me. What's that going to do for his career? He's got talent. He could make it in the NFL. You give him a decent offensive line, and he could make it in the NFL. But you got to give him time to make those throws, develop, and get games under his belt. Get experience. He's not going to get that by getting crushed in his rookie season. He needs a good offensive line up front because he doesn't have the ability to scramble away. Neither does Eli Manning. So how fair would it be to put this kid in his early 20s with so much promise right in the lion's den? Because that's what you're going to be doing if you put him behind the Giants' offensive line, what they have right now. I'm not saying the Giants couldn't use a rookie quarterback if they get a chance to get Kyler Murray. Go for it. In fact, I believe if the Cardinals pass on Kyler Murray number one overall, the Giants are going to offer the Jets a trade for the third overall pick, and they're going to snap up Kyler Murray. And Kyler Murray would do well in the Giants system because they need a mobile quarterback if they're going to continue to play with the offensive line that they have. Until that line gets rebuilt and revamped, they cannot afford to invest at the quarterback position in a stationary pocket passer quarterback. Do I think Dwayne Haskins will have a great NFL career? Yeah, I do. But not with the New York Giants. If he gets drafted by the Giants and he gets clobbered underneath that offensive line because he's not a scrambler. He's not a scrambler. And keep in mind, he's only had one year as a starter at the college level. He was very impressive. But he had one year of starting experience at Ohio State. Are we really sure that the best thing for him is putting him behind a bad offensive line and just throwing this kid to the wolves and say, go make a play? Are we really sure that's the best thing for this kid at the genesis of his bright, promising career? There's been a lot of talk linking the Giants to Daniel Jones, the quarterback out of Duke. The big guy, he's got a great arm. The difference between him and Haskins, he scrambles and he has much more experience. Maybe not the success that Haskins has had, but I like Daniel Jones a lot. Not enough to take him number six overall. The highest he could go to New York is 17th. And Jones may not be as talented of a quarterback as Haskins, but he fits the need better. Ladies and gentlemen, there is only one quarterback in this year's draft who would have a chance at starting next year for the New York Giants, and that is Kyler Murray. And again, if Arizona does choose to pass on him, I'm saying the Giants trade up and get him at number three. They want to snatch him up before the Raiders do. I just don't see much of an upside for Dwayne Haskins going to the Giants. You put him behind a better offensive line, even Washington. Cincinnati's isn't bad. 
you put him behind those offensive lines, they're both better than the Giants, and he has a better chance of success. In his best interest, I believe it would be better for him to go mid-first round to any of those teams. Don't go to New York. Your O-line's going to hang you out to dry, and your career's never going to take off. And it's not like Haskins is slow, but he's not a scrambler. And again, he's only started one year at the college level, and he excelled. But he is not being talked about as a first-round draft pick because of his speed. He's being talked about it because of his arm. I'm not saying Dwayne Haskins can't scramble or move out of the pocket if need be. I'm saying that's not where his strength lies. Ohio State gave him time to throw the ball and show off that golden arm. Giants aren't going to do that. The NFL plays at a much quicker pace, and he has a significantly worse offensive line if he is indeed a New York Giant. And then he's scrambling, running for his life. He doesn't have time to set up in the pocket and sling the football. His arm's a cannon, but you got to give him time to throw the football. You can't have him running for his life. If New York drafts him, yeah, he's he is okay. He's a capable scrambler. He's not Kyler Murray, but you know he'll move outside the pocket if need be. But that means you're not going to get his full potential. You're not going to get what you saw at Ohio State that made you want to draft him in the first round. It would be in Dwayne Haskins' best interest if the Giants didn't draft him. Draft is coming up, one of my favorite events of the entire sports year. We're going to break it down for you here Thursday and Friday. By the way, you can hear the first three rounds of the draft. We are going to carry the broadcast here on ESPN-UP Thursday and Friday. First three rounds of the NFL draft. You can hear it right here on ESPN-UP. We owe you a timeout when we come back. Triple crown on the horizon. Kentucky Derby only two weeks away. And I've got an analyst that's going to join me next and break it down for you on Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you, joined by Barry Abrams, ESPN horse racing analyst and host of the In the Gate podcast. He joins us on headset from Connecticut just ahead of the Triple Crown, the Kentucky Derby. Barry, how's everything going? It's the most wonderful time of the year, with all due respect to what the song says about December. Well, play to keep you busy with the Kentucky Derby coming up in a couple weeks. That's where I wanted to start. Tell me about the pageantry, the atmosphere, everything that goes into it behind the scenes to put on the show they do at Churchill Downs. Well, I'll never forget uh, back in 1997, we here at ESPN had done kind of a behind-the-scenes look at the Kentucky Derby before behind-the-scenes was considered de rigueur. And we had a production assistant with me because my day job is producing, not hosting a podcast. And so this guy who was with me was rather skeptical of how this whole horse racing thing kind of works. Well, Every day we'd go out to the backside of the track and watch the horse we were supposed to be reporting on do his thing, and it's very quiet and pastoral on the backstretch, and we did our jobs. And then the day of the Kentucky Oaks, which is Friday, the day before the Derby, again, we, that was the horse we were following, was a horse in the Kentucky Oaks. And even when the stands are packed at Churchill Downs, as they are that day in Derby Day, the backstretch is still probably three-quarters of a mile away, and it's still pretty quiet. But this time, the horse walks out of her barn, makes a left-hand turn onto the track, and as you've seen on TV, 
goes the wrong way around the first turn in front of the grandstand and underneath to be saddled in the paddock. Well, as soon as that horse made that left turn onto the track, the guy with me, the production assistant, said, oh, my goodness, I need to own a horse. It's just that overwhelming of an experience. Well, I tell you what, Barry, it was justified dominating the field last year. What do we expect from the 2019 version of the Derby? I don't know that there's one horse that's going to dominate, but there is a smaller group, I think, than a lot of people are anticipating. People are, as they do every year, calling this a wide-open Derby. I don't know about that. There are maybe four or five horses that I think, unless traffic trouble takes one out, which is always possible in a race with 20 horses, there really aren't that many who can win this race. Three of them, not surprisingly, are trained by one man, and that's Bob Baffert, who trained Justify and American Pharaoh. And he has Game Winner, the two-year-old champion from last year, who's now, of course, three. You have to be three to run in the Kentucky Derby. He has Improbable, and he has Roadster, all of whom are outstanding. There's another horse from California who also would join that group, and he's probably going to be the favorite when all is said and done, and his name is easy to remember. It's Omaha Beach, trained by Richard Mandela. And Richard Mandela doesn't bring very many horses to the Triple Crown. So if he has a three-year-old ready to run in this race who has run two bang-up races in Arkansas, he was shipped out to Arkansas to run in the Rebel and the Arkansas Derby and won them both against Bob Baffert-trained horses, uh, you have to take him seriously. There were a couple of others, but I'd start with those four. Well, you mentioned Omaha Beach and Roadster right now, the two horses with the highest projected odds, improbable maximum security game winner, round at the top five. Who is the sleeper that we should be keeping an eye on? Who's the dark horse in this year's race? I don't know if I'd call him a sleeper, but I don't think Tacitus is going to get quite the, uh, quite the attention that these others will get. And he's been very consistent. He won the Tampa Bay Derby and then went up to New York and won the Wood Memorial. And he's trained by another guy who isn't known for bringing horses to the Triple Crown, the Hall of Fame trainer, Bill Mott. Uh, not because he's not a capable trainer. He's one of the greatest of all time. But the Derby is not... Bill Mott's focus the way it is for Bob Baffert. So again, if Mott has a horse here, and he has two horses in this race, but Tacitus in particular, if he's bringing Tacitus to this race, it means he's really ready for this. Another long shot is the Louisiana Derby winner, By My Standards, who I'm not sure if he's quite fast enough to win this race, but boy, has he looked good training at Churchill Downs since the Louisiana Derby, which was five weeks ago. He went right to Churchill from there. He's really settled in nicely. His coat looks like a million dollars, and he's been training lights out. So, again, he's near the top of the leaderboard in terms of uh, points because you need to qualify by points. Usually the Louisiana Derby winner gets overlooked, and I understand that in this case because I'm not sure he's fast enough. He was a very late foal. He was born in the month of May when horses are normally born in February and March. So he's a little bit younger, a little bit less developed, but he's been training lights out. Barry, I wanted to ask you about War of Will. He got his first win of his career in November at this course. There seems to be a lot of riders who think that he's got a shot. Why would they think that? Does he have any shot in your opinion? 
I don't really like War of Will here. He won earlier in the season in New Orleans at the fairgrounds, but I don't think he had, in order to win this race, this particular race, the thing you really need to have is not the big turn of foot at the end, because if you've watched the Kentucky Derby over the years, rarely is the race won at the end, in the last furlong with a neck-and-neck battle. It's usually won going around the final turn. And by the time you get off the final turn, you kind of have an idea who's going to win the race. I don't see this horse having that big middle move that can really put him in position to win. I, I just, it's just a gut feeling because his numbers are not bad. But just watching him visually, I don't think he's going to be that big middle mover. Talk with Barry Abrams, ESPN horse racing analyst, host of the In the Gate podcast. Barry, tell me about some of the jockeys that are going to be on display here, how much they factor into each horse's performance and maybe some of those to watch. This is absolutely a rider's race because, again, you have 20 horses in this race, and traffic trouble is always the number one obstacle to winning. So jockeys make a big difference. One to keep in mind, if that's the case, is a horse that on paper might not rate with the best, but a horse named Long Range Toddy, whose jockey is 58-year-old John Court. He will be the oldest jockey to start the race, should it all go as planned. There isn't anything this guy hasn't seen in terms of, you know, situations and split-second decisions. Not that he's a Hall of Famer, but you're not going to rattle him as a, a jockey who hasn't gone to the Kentucky Derby very often. Uh, then, of course, you have Jose Ortiz, the Eclipse Award-winning jockey, whose every touch seems to turn to gold these days, and he will be on the aforementioned Tacitus in the race. Again, Tacitus may be a notch below on talent. You put Jose Ortiz on him, that definitely brings him into the conversation. So we're still about two weeks away. The Kentucky Derby will be on May the 4th. That'll be the first leg of the Triple Crown. How are the jockeys, the horses, the trainers spending the time in the interim as they gear up for one of the most grueling stretches of their lives? Well, this typical schedule for a horse, anyway, is to train against the clock once a week. That's where you put, it's almost like a really controlled scrimmage in a football game or something like that, where you're hitting somebody. Obviously, horses don't get hit, but they're running as if they're racing. That usually happens once a week. Typically, if the race is on Saturday, they'll all work out that way on Saturday. But we saw horses even working out today for the Kentucky Oaks. Serengeti Empress worked this morning. So usually early in the week or the weekend is when you'll see that. Then they'll take it easy for a couple of days they'll just kind of walk around the barn for like a half an hour just to stretch their legs and then they go back to the traffic excuse me they go back to the track and gallop usually a strong gallop but not one that perfectly imitates race conditions they'll also visit the starting gate because that's a big issue especially for young strong headstrong horses who really haven't run that many times maybe four or five the starting gate is still an issue, and it's important for the uh, gate crew at Churchill Downs, for those who are on the grounds at Churchill, and not all of them are, but for those who are, it's important for the gate crew to get to know them. Some horses are quirky. They don't really like to go into the gate. They need some help. So 
all of that happens behind the scenes this time of the uh, of the week and the two weeks leading up to make sure that on race day at showtime everything goes smoothly. For the most part, are we going to see the same group competing in all three legs of the Triple Crown? That is less likely because these days horses typically run every four to five weeks. The Triple Crown is a throwback to an earlier time where horses could run every two weeks with no trouble. So what you will see is a lot of the horses from the Derby skip the Preakness and come back for the Belmont. So that's why the Derby winner typically has an easier path in the Preakness. Yes, the Derby winner is turning around on short rest, but the best horses theoretically are in the Derby they're not in the Preakness because of the two-week turnaround. So that's why you've seen in the last few years quite a few triple crown attempts and two that actually went to completion with American Pharaoh and Justify. Barry, tell me about the differences in the three courses at the triple crown between Preakness, Belmont, and the Kentucky Derby. How are the jockeys going to navigate those, and what do we watch for? If you look at a map of Churchill Downs, and Pimlico Racecourse, where the Preakness is held, it doesn't, they don't look all that different in terms of how wide the turns are and, and things like that. But the riders will tell you that the turns at Pimlico, where the Preakness is held, they appear to be tighter. And so the Preakness is a race more designed for speed uh, than the Derby is, because the Derby, also, you have 20 horses going into that first turn. It becomes a big bottleneck, and so it's a big rodeo where the Preakness typically is not. But the turns are tighter, so you got to pinch a little bit, and you need horses that can go around the turn better than others. Uh, the one that comes to mind for me was 30 years ago, Sunday Silence. He just destroyed horses around the turn. He just ran the turn so well. Uh, Belmont Park is the largest track in North America. It's a mile and a half around where most tracks are a mile. Churchill Downs is a mile. And so the turns are very wide. It's like driving on a highway. You can go as hard as you want through those turns. Uh, the, the problem at Belmont Park is typically horses will give you their best for the last say, three-eighths of a mile, when you really turn it up to maximum and give me all you got. That typically would be the beginning of the final turn at a track like Pimlico or Churchill Downs. At Belmont, if you start going your hardest at the start of the final turn, that's another eighth of a mile further because the track is so big, and you'll run out of gas at the end. So you really have to know how to ride at Belmont Park to complete the Triple Crown should it be on the line. You mentioned that Preakness is designed more for a horse with speed. If an owner knows that, does he risk keeping his horse out of the Kentucky Derby, going for Preakness and seeing if that would be enough to advance onto Belmont? Yeah, that certainly factors in. I mean, the number one thing, of course, is the point system. Uh, you have to qualify for the Kentucky Derby. Churchill Downs lays out a series of 35 races in North America that pay points towards the Derby. And the top 20 get in and the rest don't. So obviously, if you don't get in, then your next option would be the Preakness. But there are some trainers who say, look, I know you own Mr. Owner or Mrs. Owner, you have derby fever and you want your box for the derby, but the right thing to do 
is to wait. Uh, that happened to a horse named Owendale, who won a race at Keeneland in Lexington a couple of weeks ago, is on the bubble of whether or not he can get into the Kentucky Derby. He would need a couple of horses to scratch out. But they've already said, we're aiming Preakness, because he's a bit of a speedier horse. So yes, you're right, that does factor in. Barry Abrams, ESPN horse racing analyst, host and producer of the In the Gate podcast. Barry, really appreciate you taking the time. We'll have you on again here soon, get an update from the Triple Crown. Thanks so much, Tanner. Always a pleasure. We owe you a timeout. Coming up, the Boston Celtics should feel very confident moving forward. I make my case why. Plus, there's one Western Conference team uniquely built to beat Golden State, and it's not Houston. That's next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Thanks for hanging out with me in your Tuesday afternoon. Here's your Sports Center update. The Phoenix Suns have fired head coach Igor Kokoskov after one season. Meanwhile, Sacramento Kings head coach Luke Walton has been accused of sexual assault from when he was an assistant coach with the Golden State Warriors. Former Michigan defensive lineman Rashawn Gary has been diagnosed with a labral tear at his shoulder just two days ahead of the NFL draft. Gary is expected to be cleared to play in 2019 and will undergo shoulder surgery in the offseason. And finally, a Florida man has been arrested for impersonating a police officer after attaching red and blue flashing lights to the grill of his car in order to bypass heavy traffic. But that's not what got him caught. He was arrested after he tried to get another vehicle to pull over as part of a practical joke. Unfortunately for him, the other motorist turned out to be a police detective in an unmarked vehicle. That is your Sports Center update. Tanner Hoops with you. Thanks for hanging out with me once again on your Tuesday afternoon. Bright, shiny, sunny. A lot better than yesterday. Looked like my parking lot was flooded when I looked outside my building. Anyway, glad that you're with us because we got plenty more to break down in the second half of today's show, beginning with the second round of the NBA playoffs. Two tickets punched, both via the sweep. Boston Celtics, Milwaukee Bucks. Second round of the NBA playoffs. The Bucs take down the Pistons 127-104 last night to sweep the series. They swept the regular season series all in all. Milwaukee was 8-0 against Detroit this year. And the longest losing streak in the NBA continues. The Pistons' last playoff win was back on May 26th of 2008. The Seattle Supersonics were still in the league. Tim Tebow was the Heisman Trophy winner that year. And George W. Bush was still president. The Bucks, however, win their first playoff series since 2001. They made the Eastern Conference Finals that year, and they're four victories away from getting there again. But they got to go through the Boston Celtics, a team that also breezed through the first round. And each team is missing a key role player, about as key of a role player as you can ask for. Malcolm Brogdon from Milwaukee, Marcus Smart from Boston. Smart, the team's top defender, although the defensive efficiency has gone up since Smart's been out of the lineup, weirdly enough. Their offensive efficiency has gone down, even though Smart is known more for his defense. He's a facilitator. Malcolm Brogdon, on the other side, is about as efficient as anybody in the NBA right now. He maximizes every possession. That's what makes him so important in Milwaukee. I believe that these are the two best teams in the Eastern Conference. Whoever wins this series will win the Eastern Conference and go on to the NBA Finals. Philadelphia is a hot mess. They're talented, but they can't stay out of their own way. They're good enough that they shouldn't get bounced in the first round. They're going to get by the nets and move on. They're talented, but they're not put together. 
and they're not going to beat a team that is talented and put together, like Toronto, like Boston, like Milwaukee. 76ers are not going to the NBA Finals. I don't see Toronto doing it either. Toronto's top-heavy. They're loaded in their starting lineup. Their bench is weak. They don't have the depth that the other teams left in the East have. That's going to get exposed when they play a really good team in a long series. So it's Boston and Milwaukee playing essentially for a chance to go to the NBA Finals. You have one team that everyone thought would run away with the East this year playing the team that did, in reality, run away with the East this year. But this might be a tougher matchup than Bucks fans are anticipating. Here's what we're looking at. Giannis deserves this year's MVP, and he's going to get his. Giannis is going to do his thing. When the lights are the brightest and the stage is the biggest, Giannis has gone above and beyond the call of duty. In the game that clinched home court advantage, Giannis dropped 45. Last night to clinch the series, 41. He's going to do his thing. Against Boston this year, he's averaging 32 points, 11 rebounds. He's averaging a double-double against the Celtics. Giannis is going to get his. So it's going to be about limiting the rest of the Milwaukee offense. What does Boston do defensively? Well, they're going to play zone. The Celtics are a team that can play zone, defend the three ball really well. They were fourth in the NBA this year in defending the three. Bank on it. Brad Stevens is going to throw a whole mess of zones at Milwaukee this series. And that's going to be the catalyst for Boston. That's where Boston has to be good. That's one of two advantages Boston has they have to take advantage of to win this series. They have to play well in the zone. Milwaukee had the highest offensive efficiency in the Eastern Conference this year, no surprise. But they were 10th in the Eastern Conference out of 15 when facing a zone. I'll say that again. They were first of 15 in teams in the Eastern Conference in offensive efficiency. But they dropped to 10th out of 15 in offensive efficiency when facing a zone. What's more, Milwaukee had a turnover rate of 13.4% when the other team played zone. That was worst out of all 30 teams in the NBA this year. Milwaukee is vulnerable to the zone. Teams have played zones on Milwaukee before, but they haven't had the talent like Boston's had. Boston's got the talent to zone effectively for a seven-game series if need be. The other biggest catalyst in this series, and really in what designs this Eastern Conference, is your closer. In this Eastern Conference, as tight as it is, where you've got four teams that really could contend for the Eastern Conference crown. We wouldn't be surprised to see four different teams win the East this year. Very much unlike the East in recent memories. You've got four teams that could do it, and it's probably going to come down to your last couple of possessions. We are going to see tight ball games. We haven't seen that early on. It's not been a great first round. The road team has a winning record in this first round of the playoffs. The semifinals and the conference finals are going to be scrappy dogfights. It's going to come down right to the end. Who's going to step up and make the big shot for you? You need your closer. You need one of the best finishers in basketball on your team. And each of the four major teams, assuming that they are the four that move on to the semis, Boston, Milwaukee, Toronto, and Philadelphia, those four each have one dominant closer. They have an alpha that they turn to when they need a bucket. So who is the best alpha closer of those four? It's far and away Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving is the guy that you want the ball in his hands. He's not afraid of the bright lights or the big shot. He has made no bigger shot in his career than the one that locked up the 2016 finals when he was with Cleveland. Kyrie Irving willed the Celtics to victory so many times this season. You saw it against Indiana in Game 2. The way that they finished the game on a 29-9 run, that was Kyrie-inspired. 
Look at Boston's series against Indiana. There is something we can learn from that. I know Indiana was without Oladipo, but they were even in point totals for the final three games of that series until the final eight minutes of each game. Then Boston dominated because they know how to close out games because Kyrie Irving is that alpha. They had talent on last year's team that came up one game short of the NBA Finals, including a victory over Milwaukee in the first round of the playoffs. But they didn't have that alpha. And let's face it, you need an alpha on your team if you're going to win in today's NBA. Kyrie Irving is the best of those closers in the Eastern Conference. Number two is Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard steps up and hits the big shot he can hit from anywhere on the floor. He's that catalyst that Toronto needs. He has to set the tone for Toronto to continue to move on and advance in the postseason. Stephen A. Smith and Mark Johnson were discussing something similar yesterday. They were talking about the best closers in the Eastern Conference. And while they made their list, I made my own in my head. And all three of us came up with the same list. Number three on the list, we had Giannis Antetokounmpo. Giannis deserves to be this year's MVP. And if I had my choice between Giannis and Kyrie Irving or Kawhi Leonard or anybody else in the NBA, I would choose Giannis for the first 45 minutes of a game, and I'd choose Kyrie for the final three. Giannis's inability to shoot from the outside as well as the other two, meaning Kyrie and Kawhi, is why I place him third on that list with Joel Embiid fourth. He's not a bad outside shooter, but he's not at the clip that Kyrie and Kawhi are. That all being said, Milwaukee is the favorite in this series, and it's a weird series, because even though Milwaukee is the team that was far and away the best team in the East this year, all the pressure seems to be on Boston. It's not on the one seed, not on the team that won 60 games in the regular season. It's on Boston, because of the expectations that were put on them in July. And it's no secret that I'm a Celtics fan. All that being said, I'm more confident in the Celtics as a journalist that I am as a fan. In fact, I'm not very confident as a Boston fan going up against Milwaukee. I don't want to see them. I think we're all like that with our own teams. We all get a little more emotionally invested than we'd like to be. As a journalist, though, I'm more confident in the Celtics and their ability to win this series than I am as a Celtics fan. This is going to be one fun series of basketball. By the way, time for your stat of the day. I said earlier that this is the first playoff series Milwaukee has won since 2001. The last time the Bucks swept an NBA postseason series? You have to go all the way back to 1983. This is a special team you've got here, Milwaukee fans. Enjoy the ride, enjoy this series. I can't wait for it to get started. I'm excited to see the rest of the NBA playoff field take shape in round two. Got a few games tonight with a few teams that could clinch, punch their ticket, and join Milwaukee and Boston. You've got Orlando visiting Toronto tonight. The Raptors lead the series three games to one. That game will tip off at seven. Then you've got Brooklyn and Philadelphia. In Philly, Sixers lead the series three games to one. That game will start at eight. So both Philadelphia and Toronto with chances to move on to the second round this evening. Here's a great series. San Antonio and Denver tied at two games apiece. Game five tonight in the Mile High City. 9.30 tip-off as those two teams grapple for positioning. And then Oklahoma City tries to avoid elimination when they visit Portland tonight. That game will tip off at 10.30, game five, as Portland leads it three games to one. All right, before we hit the break, I teased earlier that I believe there's one team that is uniquely designed to beat Golden State and stop them from reaching another NBA Finals. And it's not Houston. 
I think Houston is the most talented team other than Golden State left in the Western Conference, but I don't think they're going to beat them. I think that the team that is uniquely designed, I don't think they were built for this purpose, but I look at them and I think this team has a real chance to beat Golden State, the Portland Trailblazers. I think Portland has the best chance of anybody to beat Golden State and stop them from getting to the NBA Finals. I think Portland, if they're able to take care of business against OKC and then whether it be San Antonio or Denver, they will be the toughest matchup for Golden State. Now to clarify, I think Houston is the second most talented team in the Western Conference. But I believe this is a bad matchup for Golden State. Facing Portland would be a bad matchup for the Warriors, based on the way the team's built. Golden State hasn't breezed through the first round like people were saying they would. They've struggled against the scrappy Clippers team, up three games to one, nearly dropped game four. Plus, they lose DeMarcus Cousins to a season-ending injury. But what makes the Clips so tough is their ability to defend, to put pressure on the offensive stars that Golden State throws out there. Patrick Beverly has been wonderful in this series, especially the first two games. He's cooled off a little bit. You know, Steve Kerr will make adjustments. He's a good enough coach that he's not going to let one guy ride you for the whole series. But you've got to be able to play some level of defense against Golden State. There is still a place for defense in the NBA. And I don't know that Houston practices that. Houston is a team that wins games by outscoring their opponent. You don't want to get into a high-scoring shootout with Golden State. You're not going to win that. As good as Harden is, presumably they're going to have Chris Paul back in time for that series. You're not going to outscore Golden State. You've got to get some stops, and you've got to make plays in the offensive end. Portland is a team with their length, their athleticism. I believe they're going to be a really bad matchup for Golden State defensively. Plus... McCollum, Lillard, they can score the ball as well as anybody. You get some stops on the defensive end, and then you let those two get going, they could really, really be Golden State's nightmare in the Western Conference Finals. I think Houston will give them a good series. I think they're the second most talented team in the Western Conference, but I don't think that they're skilled enough defensively to beat the Warriors. It's going to be a shootout. It's going to be a really fun series to watch if you like offense. You know, Harden's going to do his thing. He's going to single-handedly try to outscore Curry, Thompson, Green, Durant combined. But in the end, you got to play a little defense. you got to get stops where it counts. And Houston hasn't done that consistently enough for me this season. Harden's game is the embodiment of that team. Put up shots, score points. Defense is optional. You can't do that against Golden State. I think Portland has a better shot at beating Golden State than Houston does. We owe you a timeout when we come back. we got a couple of Game 7s on the docket tonight. NHL Stanley Cup playoffs. That's next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Thanks for hanging out with me as we wind it down to the 5 o'clock hour here on this Tuesday We've got the NHL to break down to end the day, but first football news as more details emerge about the trade between the Chiefs and the Seahawks earlier this afternoon. Kansas City going all in this year as they acquire defensive end Frank Clark. He signs to a five-year, $105.5 million deal. $63.5 million of that is guaranteed. What happened was the two sides have been talking for the last week or so, and there was a deadline today of noon Pacific for this deal to get done because obviously the Chiefs have to bring Frank Clark to Kansas City, get a physical done before the draft. 
go through all the machinations, but the agreement was in place to get this done, and the two sides have just finalized the deal with the general managers, John Schneider and Brett Veach, on the telephone, getting this deal done moments ago. And what it will involve is Kansas City's first-round pick this year, Kansas City's second-round pick next year. Now, keep in mind, the Chiefs have two second-round picks next year. Theirs and the one that they got from the 49ers for D4. This will be the lower of the two second-round picks. Whichever one is lower next year goes to the Seattle Seahawks for Frank Clark, and the two teams will flip third-round draft picks this year. Frank Clark is going to sign a new massive long-term extension in Seattle that will pay him, I'm going to guess, roughly $20 million per year. You're giving away the first-round pick. You're giving away second-round pick. You're getting a little bit, you know, you're moving up a little bit in the third round. But there's apples to oranges and there's apples to apples. And when you're looking at a guy like Frank Clark, and if you're comfortable with the character and who he is as a person and he's going to fit in the locker room, there's no question what he is as a football player. And he is a dynamic pass rusher and a run defender. I mean, this guy's an every-down player. So I think you know that what you're getting. So Frank Clark is the latest in a long line of additions to the Chiefs' defense this offseason. Everyone said all they do is outscore other teams or like the football version of the Houston Rockets. They need a defense, and that was what kept them out of the Super Bowl last year. That's largely what people think. There may be some truth to it. That won't be the case this year. The Chiefs have bolstered their defense this offseason. They have picked up Teron Matthew, Brashad Breeland, Alex Okafor, Damian Wilson, Emmanuel Ogba, and now Frank Clark. It's a pretty good list, especially in the secondary. Tyron Matthew, the Honey Badger, Bashad Breeland, Packer fans remember him. If Kansas City doesn't make the Super Bowl this year, it's not going to be because they were a one-sided team. It's not going to be because there wasn't a defense. Kansas City going all in, striking on the opportunity to play for a Super Bowl. It is a sports band on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you once again. Thank you so much for being with me. Once again, if you missed any part of the show, you can check it out on demand. Go to the on-demand section of our free mobile app. You can get it from the Apple iStore or Google Play. Just look up ESPN-UP. Well, I tell you what, if you're a hockey fan, I have a pretty good idea of how you're going to be spending your night tonight. The two greatest words in all of sports, Game 7. And we have two of them this evening. A doubleheader, 7-10. and 10. Toronto takes on Boston in the first game. The nightcap has Vegas and San Jose. Both those series tied 3-3. Winner moves on to the second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs, and the loser goes home. Let's break down these two games. Toronto at Boston. What a series it's been between these two teams. I didn't think Toronto had the goaltending to stay in it. But Frederick Anderson has been quietly proving me wrong. It has been an offensive onslaught for Toronto, and that's largely been why they've been so competitive in this series and this season. It's going to be a defensive showcase for Boston. You have two conflicting styles, high-octane offense against strong, powerful defense. The styles the two teams play can be summed up by the two players that are arguably the faces of each franchise. Austin Matthews, quick, wiry, a scoring machine. Zadino Chara, six foot seven, a mammoth on the defensive end. Not the guy you want to see in the back alley. This is the ultimate yin-yang in sports. High-octane offense against stifling defense. That's what you're going to get tonight in a winner-take-all situation. A season on the line. 
Here's a snapshot of Toronto offensively. They were fourth in the NHL in goals per game this year, fourth in shots on goal. They had the eighth best power play, the sixth best shooting percentage, and they were the second best face-off team in the regular season this year. Boston, pretty good offensive numbers. They're about the middle of the pack for most of them. Shots on goal, they're ninth. Total goals, they're 11th. Their power play has been exceptional, however. They are at 26%, third best in all of hockey. So both teams are top eight in the entire NHL this year in power play. Can't take penalties in this one. Boston also 51% of the faceoff. That is tied for 10th in the NHL. Defensively, though, here's where things start to tilt in the Bruins' favor. The Bruins are tied for third and fewest goals allowed, and they're sixth in shots on goal allowed. Toronto conversely 20th and 24th in those respective categories. It's a classic offense versus defense type game. Yin-yang. About as much as you can get in the sporting world. But if the outcome's not decided by offense or defense, what is it? Here's a football analogy. Your coaches say all the time, you have to be good in all three facets of the game. Offense, defense, and special teams. Special teams will be what decides tonight's Game 7 between Boston and Toronto. The power play, the penalty kill, and penalty minutes. So who does that favor? Power play again, both of them are very good. Boston's third in the NHL at 26%, Toronto's is eighth at 22%. Penalty kill, neither of them are very good. They're both at 80%, that's tied for 16th in the NHL. On paper, these two teams match up pretty well, they're pretty even. Except for one crucial category, and this is what I believe will be the difference tonight. Penalty minutes. Both power plays are good, both penalty kills are mediocre. Penalty minutes and how often you're in the box per game. Toronto, fewest in the NHL. Toronto has the fewest penalty minutes of any team in the NHL this season. Boston, second to last. They were in the box more than 29 other teams in the NHL this year. It is for that reason I am picking Toronto to win. They're going to get a crucial power play goal. And Toronto is going to close out the series with a win tonight at Boston. All of Canada's back in them. They're the only team from Canada left in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Boston plays that big bruiser style of defense that's embodied by Zidane Chara. But you can't spend more time in the box than 29 other teams in the NHL against a top 10 power play. A team that's known for its offense. It's top 5 in almost every major offensive category. You can't do it. It is for that reason I'm going with Toronto. A crucial power play goal will be the difference tonight, and the Maple Leafs will move on to the second round. The nightcap has Vegas taking on San Jose in San Jose, a battle between two divisional rivals. Winner moves on, loser goes home. Sharks head coach Peter DeBoer surprised a lot of people when he left Martin Jones in net despite playing poorly through the first four games of the series. He sent him out there for Game 5 despite it being an elimination game. And Jones responded, knowing that coach has that confidence in you, it seemed to energize Martin Jones. Jones bounced back, and he was tremendous in net in the last two games of the series, and he's given his team a chance. Vegas has had two opportunities to close out this series. They couldn't get it done. Will the third time be the charm for them, although they have to do it on the road this evening? Let's take a look at these two teams. Let's compare them. San Jose offensively, tied for second in the NHL in goals per game, and they are 6th in shots on goal, 6th on the power play, 4th in shooting percentage. On paper, the numbers say they have the talent offensively to do it. 
Vegas, conversely, tied for 13th in goals per game. They are right at three, although they're second in the NHL in shots on goal per game. Weirdly enough, again, tied for 13th in total goals, but second shots on goal. So they're getting pucks on net. Their power play has not been very good this year. 17%, that's 25th in all the NHL. They are 24th in the NHL in total shooting percentage. And both teams middle of the road as far as face-off percentage. In fact, they are separated by just 0.1%. Vegas at 50.4%, 14th best face-off. San Jose 15th at 50.3%. Defensively, however, that's where Vegas seems to have an edge. They were 10th in total goals allowed this year. San Jose was 21st. Shots on goal, uh, this is where it's kind of a weird stat. Vegas was fifth in fewest shots on goal allowed. San Jose was second on fewest shots on goal allowed. So what does that tell you? Where they have given up more goals than 20 other teams in the NHL, but only one has allowed more shots to get to the net. Yeah, they're 21st in total goals allowed in the NHL this year, but second shots on goal allowed. That tells me their defensive core are doing their job. The Blue Liners, which, again, they probably have the best defensive core out of any team left in the playoffs. Arguably, they've got it between Brett Burns, Eric Carlson, and company. Yet, Martin Jones has to be better. He has to. If your defense is turning away pucks from getting to you, but enough get by you that you're still 21st in total goals allowed, you're not doing your job in net. Penalty kill, again, they're both middle of the pack. It's another stat where they're separated by just 0.1%. Vegas at 80.9, that's 14th. San Jose, 80.8, that is 15th. But like the Toronto-Boston game, penalty minutes can play a crucial factor in this one as well. Vegas, fifth fewest penalty minutes in the NHL this year. San Jose, 25th. You gotta stay out of the box. You stay out of the box and give yourself that extra opportunity to score. Again, they're both fairly even in penalty kill. Power play decisively in San Jose's favor, but San Jose is in the box much more often. I'm not going to make a prediction in this game. I'm not going to put myself out there for this one. I did for the first one. I'm just going to enjoy this one as a fan of hockey. I would not be surprised if it went either way, but the Sharks are playing with momentum right now. They're the hottest team, and sometimes that's what matters more. All right, quick recap of the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs from last night. Carolina in a must-win situation. Hamilton, the pig, does his job. And the Hurricanes win on home ice. They take down Washington 5-2, even that series up at 3-3. So we will get a third game three coming up tomorrow night. Elsewhere, it took overtime, but the Dallas Stars are moving on to the second round. They defend home ice as they win. 2-1 against Nashville. They take the series 4-2. Dak Prescott, Ezekiel Elliott were in the house as Jonathan Klingborg hits the winner. I tell you what, if you really want me to eat crow, you're going to get your wish because I'm about to eat crow. I didn't think the Dallas Stars had a shot in this series. I thought they were going to be done in five games. I thought Nashville's upside was better than anything Dallas could bring to the table. And they proved me wrong. They take it in six games. It's a Predator team that just a couple of years ago when they made the cup final against Pittsburgh, they looked like they were going to be primed to be the Western Conference powerhouse for years to come. They looked like they were primed to be the Golden State Warriors of the NHL. And by that, I mean the Western Conference runs through them. And since then, they've continually taken steps backward. I thought Nashville had the advantage in net. I thought Pekka Rene would be able to outplay an aging Ben Bishop. 
A guy who's still got something he can bring to the table, but his best years are behind him? And yet first-year head coach Jim Montgomery has found a way to move his team on to the second round. This year's edition of the Stanley Cup playoffs is one of those years where if you're filling out a bracket challenge and you're somebody who knows nothing about hockey, you probably have a good shot. Because once this postseason started, you take everything that you thought you knew about hockey and you throw it out the window. Because logic, numbers, statistics haven't meant anything. 62 wins, an NHL record, didn't mean anything to the Tampa Bay Lightning. They get swept by Columbus in the first round. Everything we thought we knew or thought made sense, you just throw it out the window. Because it doesn't apply once you drop the puck in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And that's why we love it. Except when our team gets swept out in the first round. I'm talking about Pittsburgh. I tell you what, we are out of time. As always, appreciate you tuned into the Sports Pen. Hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Back on tomorrow, same time and place, 4 Eastern, 3 Central, right here on ESPN-UP and online with our app. If you missed any part of the show or you want to go back and hear previous episodes, you can use that app, go to the On Demand section. You can get the app in the Apple I Store or Google Play. Just search ESPN-UP. Signing off from the ESPN-UP WZIM studios, I'm Tanner Hoops. Until tomorrow, thanks for listening to the Sports Pen.